0: Bacterial and archaeal symbioses with protists. Summary Most of the genetic, cellular, and biochemical diversity of life rests within single celled organisms the prokaryotes, which are bacteria and archaea, and the microbial eukaryotes, which are protists. Very close interactions or symbioses between protists and prokaryotes are ubiquitous, ecologically significant and date back at least 2 billion years to the origin of mitochondria. However, most of our knowledge about the evolution and function of eukaryotic symbioses comes from the study of animal hosts, which represent only a small subset of eukaryotic diversity. Here, we take a broad view of bacterial and archaeal symbioses with protist hosts, focusing on their evolution, ecology, and cell biology and also explore what functions, if any, the symbionts provide to their hosts. With the immense diversity of protist symbiosis starting to come into focus, we can now begin to see how these systems impact symbiosis theory more broadly. Introduction The crucial role of endosymbiosis in the origin of eukaryotic cells and organelles is now accepted beyond any serious doubt, and that debate has turned to focus on how deep was its impact, and how ancient were the associations that gave rise to mitochondria and plastids. However, it would be a mistake to codify the effects of endosymbiosis based on a few events of extreme antiquity, because bacterial archaeal symbionts continue to play major roles today in eukaryotic cell biology, molecular biology, ecology, and evolution. The body of evidence for the importance of these ongoing relationships nearly all comes from studies of multicellular hosts, where both apparently parasitic and beneficial relationships have yielded fascinating insights into the mechanism and outcomes of long-term cohabitation. From these studies, new basic principles are taking shape. However, the strong focus on multicellular hosts contrasts with the fact that most of the genetic, cellular, and biochemical diversity of eukaryotes rests within single-celled organisms called protists. We know from over a century of microscopy and more recent molecular and genomic evidence that protists also form a multitude of symbiotic associations with bacteria and archaea, yet We know considerably less about the evolution of or function of these associations compared with symbioses involving animal hosts. This is important because much of our theoretical foundation for understanding symbiosis comes from well-studied animal systems that are functionally based on mitigating simple, stable nutritional deficiencies such as lack of essential amino acid biosynthesis. This is unlikely to be a particularly important driver of symbiosis in protists, as most do not have nutrient-limiting diets. Rather, they are grazers, predators, or mixotrophs, and, consequently, symbioses based on nutritional supplementation are relatively rare. The breadth of protist biology can be intimidating to synthesize or digest in general and this also applies to their symbiotic interactions. Protist-prokaryote symbioses span functional spectra from facultative to obligate, and from mutualistic to parasitic. Examples of nearly every taxonomic variety of protists have formed associations with an even broader diversity of prokaryotes, which can completely cover their host in a layer of ectosymbionts, or be housed within the host cytoplasm, nucleus, mitochondria, or plastids. Functionally, these associations can be driven by metabolism, nutritional supplementation, defense, taxes, and probably a multitude of subtle impacts we are yet to grasp. The evolutionary outcomes of these associations are equally variable, ranging from stable, long-term cellular integration to short and swiftly deleterious exploitation, each with different and at least partially predictable genomic impacts. Coming to grips with the biological diversity inherent in proto-systems is indeed a challenge, but the characteristics of these systems, including how they contrast with better studied animal systems, give us perhaps our most promising window through which to distinguish context-dependent trends for more basic evolutionary and cell biological principles common to symbiotic associations. Subsection. Phylogenetic diversity of protist hosts and symbionts. Looking across the tree of eukaryotes, symbioses have been characterized, at least to some level, in virtually all of the well-studied supergroups. This distribution, however, is not even. Symbiosis is abundantly documented in some lineages and rare in others, and the major outstanding question is how much of this reflects lineage-specific biological bias to hosting symbionts, and how much is simply sampling and cultivation bias. Distinguishing between the two is complicated. Large cell size might favor symbiosis, for example, but large protists are also better studied and more cultivated. The hosts that have most frequently been documented to engage in symbiotic associations are ciliates, amoebozoans, and termite-associated parabasalians and oxymonads. These are followed at some distance by certain photosynthetic lineages, such as dinoflagellates and diatoms and protists that are themselves symbiotic, like the parasitic trypanosomatids. Data are scarce for most free-living heterotrophs, which tend to be smaller, less studied, and more difficult to cultivate, but nevertheless represent a major fraction of eukaryotic diversity. From the perspective of symbiont diversity, a similar picture emerges, but likely for different reasons. There are examples. Of symbionts for many bacterial and archaeal lineages, but some are far more represented. The most common symbionts are proteobacteria, especially the alpha proteobacteria subgroup, but Bacteroidetes, Chlamydia, and cyanobacteria are also very common. All known symbiotic archaea are methanogens, though they are scattered through various families. Here, Sampling bias might play some role. For example, many molecular tools to detect symbionts were validated for proteobacteria, but it is less likely to be a major factor because sampling is typically host-focused, and because many of these lineages have specifically adapted to a symbiotic lifestyle, and therefore are more frequent symbionts. This is most evident for rickettsiales, haloborales both alpha-proteobacteria, and chlamydia. These lineages encompass specialized intracellular bacteria, with very few exceptions. They have colonized most groups of eukaryotes in a pattern that emphatically does not mirror host phylogeny. Our understanding of Rucatiales in particular, has been rewritten by investigations in aquatic protists. Where the Rickettsiales were formerly known exclusively as agents of arthropod-transmitted diseases, like spotted fever and typhus, we now know that all of their adaptations for a symbiotic lifestyle evolved earlier in protist hosts. That such lineages of professional symbionts should lead to a taxonomic bias is obvious, but this is also has important implications for how we interpret the function of symbioses that are only beginning to come into focus. Although many famous symbiotic systems are described as partnerships between a single host and a symbiont, data are emerging to challenge this assumption. Despite their unicellular nature, protists are increasingly found to harbor communities of several coexisting symbiotic species. The richness and functional complexity of these communities are not very different from some model animal quote, microbiomes. Taxonomically, distinct symbionts and protocells can still be spatially compartmentalized, with organelles playing the role of tissues in animals. Most bacterial and archaeal endosymbionts inhabit the cytoplasm, but some appear to be freely distributed or even swimming about, whereas others are surrounded by host derived membranes. Other symbionts are closely associated with specific organelles, especially mitochondria and mitochondria derived organelles. Some bacterial symbionts colonize the outer surface of the host often in orderly arrangements or confined to specific areas. Finally, some of the most puzzling symbionts have invaded the host nuclear apparatus, even burrowing into the chromatin. Untangling the biases and biological factors that underpin the distribution and diversity of symbiosis across eukaryotes is a difficult but important problem because such factors will undoubtedly reflect basic principles behind their function and evolution. As we will see below, too many of these remain unclear. Subsection. Parasites, commensals, mutualists. Where to draw the line? There is a vague but widespread perception that symbiosis is typically mutualistic. Unfortunately, there is a lot of fuzzy terminology surrounding symbiosis in general, but conflating Symbiosis and mutualism has particularly broad potential to mislead. Terms that confer a benefit or cost to symbiotic partners are defined by fitness gains or losses that are incredibly difficult to quantify and almost never measured. Moreover, fitness effects are not only dependent on environmental conditions, including temperature, resources, host availability, etc., but also timescale-dependent, an association that ecologists might see as clearly mutualistic may be closer to a death row prison sentence for one partner on evolutionary timescales. Overall, there is a growing body of evidence suggesting that discrete categories of fitness-defined symbioses, like parasitism and mutualism, May only really be informative for the most extreme ends of the spectrum, and that symbioses should be rather viewed as ongoing in context-dependent power struggles. In this view, which partner is driving the association affects how it evolves And protos symbioses, especially endosymbioses, provide numerous examples that blur the line between mutual benefit and exploitation. On one hand, are host-driven associations with symbionts that diverged recently from free living ancestors, but are now being exploited by their hosts, and whose likely fate is to spiral down the evolutionary rabbit hole to extinction. On the other hand, are associations driven by the quote professional symbionts, belonging to lineages ancestrally adapted to an opportunistic intracellular lifestyle and who frequently switch hosts over evolutionary time. The frequency of host switches is likely underestimated since the natural host range of proto-symbionts is rarely known and almost never tested. True mutualism in the microbial world may be extremely rare over long evolutionary time frames, if it exists at all. A fascinating special subtype of nutritional symbiosis that illustrates how fuzzy our categories are is microbial, quote, farming, or, quote, gardening. Here, bacteria such as chemolithotrophic sulfide oxidizers, or cyanobacteria, are cultured, in the best-known cases, extracellularly, such as the heterotrophic dinoflagellate, ornithocercus, or the ciliates, trichodenopsis, and controphorus. And harvested as food. These cases are often described as mutualism, but the symbionts are grown like vegetables in tiny greenhouses or garden plots, so although the interaction is stable in ecological time, the host eventually eats the bacteria. This is no more a case of long-term mutualism than is cattle farming by humans. In a twist on this theme, the social amoeba Dictyostelium sometimes associates with Burkholderia symbionts that exert both pathogenic and mutualistic effects on the host in a context-dependent manner. The symbionts turn Dictyostelium into farmers of diverse food bacteria. These bacteria are expelled when the host disperses its spores, seeding a garden of preferred food species for germinating spores to feed upon and even secrete chemicals to inhibit non-symbiotic Dictyostelium hosts. Farming is an eye-catching form of symbiosis, and we will discuss other functions for relatively well-studied cases below. But we must stress that for the vast majority of known protist prokaryote symbioses, any potential cost or benefit to either partner is more difficult to assess. In animal systems, Symbiont genomes often, but not always, reveal simple nutritional supplementation arrangements. But the situation in protosymbionts will not likely be so simple. The genomes of protosymbionts encode large numbers of genes of unknown functions, and it is likely that many symbionts serve no specific function to their hosts Or at least one not easily discerned from genome annotation. Directly measuring fitness effects under laboratory conditions used for protoscultures has been undertaken only for a few systems. And even when it is measured, the presence of symbionts is often found to lack pronounced negative or positive effects on host growth. This might change under the more stressful, heterogeneous, and ever-changing conditions found in nature, especially considering complex host interactions with other organisms. Subsection Genome evolution in protist symbionts Symbionts, and endosymbionts in particular, are known for their extreme genome structure and content, and protosymbionts symbionts are no exception. In terms of genome size, Protist endosymbionts cover a broad range of reduction, from around 3.6 megabase pairs in the acanthamoeba nucleus invading Berchiella aquiae to the euploides endosymbiont, Penguicoccus serpinus, which, at 163 kilo base pairs, is scarcely larger than the smallest known insect endosymbiont genome. Which is 112 kilobase pairs. Ectosymbiont genomes are generally larger. The Bacteroidetes ectosymbiont of Ordinivivax streblomastigis of Streblomastix has a genome predicted to be over 4.9 megabases, whereas the genome of the surface embedded, the sulfovibrio of Trichonympha agilis is a mere 1.4 megabase pairs. Insect ectosymbionts with significantly smaller genomes, around 270 kilobases, are known. And similarly sized ectosymbionts might also be found in protists when more are examined. Too few archaeal endosymbionts of protists are known to draw many conclusions, but current genomes range from approximately 1.7 to 2 mega base pairs. All this shows is that protosymbiont genomes are prone to reduction. The far more interesting information comes from examining parallels between how genome reduction happens in protos and animal symbionts, and how it affects genome structure and content. Why gene function is lost is relatively easy to explain. Symbiosis obviates the need for many functions, relaxing selection pressure on newly non essential genes and allowing loss of function mutations to become fixed. Loss of some functions is expected, but in others, the extremity of reduction can be surprising. For example, many essential metabolic pathways have been lost in endosymbionts due to the presence of transporters. Case in point, The loss of most energy metabolism due to ATP-ADP translocases that directly import ATP from the host. Genes for replication, transcription, and translation are retained the longest in all symbionts of and animals. But even in these processes, some genes are lost. Although the loss of many genes may simply be explained by their unnecessary function, genome reduction can go much further. One force that plays an outsized role in this process is Muller's ratchet, in which deleterious mutations are fixed in small symbiont populations due to genetic drift. This is compounded by elevated mutation rates resulting from loss of recombination and error correction systems, which can also bias in favor of deletions and high AT composition. Determining whether drift or elevated mutation rate is the main non-adaptive factor in genome erosion remains a major challenge in most systems, because the symbionts are so distant from even the nearest free-living relatives that synonymous mutations are saturated. So far, only the Euploides polynucleobacter symbioses have substitution rates been distinguished showing genetic drift to have the larger impact. Other studies have shown that gene loss is correlated with mutation rates when time is factored into substitution rates, but data for more symbioses are needed. Whether due to drift and or mutation rate, the expected outcome is a small genome with few genes, high substitution rates, and low GC content. Many obligate proto-symbionts fit this description, especially Holosporaceae and Rickettsiales, and yet the evolutionary outcomes are not always the same. We can generalize these into three main functional categories that share genomic characteristics intimately tied to which partner controls and benefits from the association. Extinction, symbiont professionalism, and integration. We will view each in turn. Extinction may not sound like a symbiosis outcome, but evidence is emerging to suggest that what may seem like a long-term symbiosis between co-evolving partners can really be a recurring, host-driven cycle of exploitation, replacement, and extinction. The symbiont genome is reduced in a seemingly chaotic and rapid fashion with the loss of recombination and repair pathways and unchecked fixation of deleterious mutations, leading to a runaway genomic breakdown that is inviable in the long term. Genome size reduction is variable, but loss of function and pseudogenization are abundant. In protist hosts, this is best characterized in polynucleobacter endosymbionts of euploides. Detecting this process requires substantial data from numerous related strains, but there are intriguing data from other systems to suggest the same process. For example, recurrent replacements have been observed in methanogenic endosymbionts of anaerobic ciliates, and in one case, little genomic reduction has occurred, consistent with a recent uptake. Symbiont replacement in animals, specifically sap-feeding insects, has also occurred multiple times. But it would be an oversimplification to say all such symbionts are on the road to extinction. Some insect symbionts with extremely reduced genomes were acquired more than 270 million years ago. These may be exceptional cases that have reached a stable yet severely reduced state or they may partly reflect the relative ease with which symbionts can be replaced in protists versus animals. A phagotrophic protist consuming bacteria might have long ago replaced such symbionts whereas sap feeding animals have limited opportunities to do so. A population genomics approach is needed to understand symbiont replacement events. The pace of genome degradation and reduction and whether these processes operate over different timescales in animal and protist hosts. A second evolutionary outcome is the professional symbiont. These symbionts belong to lineages ancestrally adapted to symbiosis, often obligatory, and are found in a wide range of protist and animal hosts. Their genomes are reduced, but not in the haphazard or extreme way of those destined for extinction. They are compact, orderly, and streamlined with few non-essential genes or mobile elements, but they do retain many DNA recombination and repair systems. These symbionts also contain a variety of systems that mediate host infection and interactions, controlling the symbiosis. This includes arsenals of secretion systems and defectors, like type four, and type 6 secretion systems common in bacteria, which are often repurposed to secrete host-targeted effectors instead of the bacterial-targeted effectors used in interspecific competition of free-living bacteria. Many potentially secreted proteins have no eukaryotic interacting domains, such as leucine-rich repeats and anchorin repeats. However, Most proteins with these domains are hypothetical, with unknown functions. Other professional symbionts retain the ability to actively infect their hosts. For example, Holosporaceae and Chlamydiae. Although the professional symbionts appear to exert some control over the association, they are not immune from Mueller's Ratchet and risk extinction of DNA repair and recombination pathways become compromised. The third and very rare outcome of protosymbionts is the integration to an organelle state. Only three prokaryotic symbiont-derived systems are currently thought to have reached this bar. Mitochondria, plastids, and polynella chromatophores. Multiple mutually exclusive definitions of Organelle and endosymbiont exist, but the most commonly used one defines organelles based on genetic integration and protein targeting. In all of these cases, host encoded proteins are targeted to the organelle, although we will discuss in the last section how even this relatively objective criterion is becoming more complex. Other endosymbionts have been proposed to be in the early stages of such integration. Including the spheroid bodies of cyanobacterial origin in the diatom Ropalodia gibba and Kinetoplastibacterium in Kinetoplastid hosts. No protein import has been detected in R. gibba, and the spheroid bodies have relatively large genomes with varying degrees of reduction. Import has been reported in bacterium and the symbiont cell division is synchronously tied to that of the hosts. Whatever the fates of kinetoplasta bacterium and the spheroid bodies may be, these systems will provide important insights into the processes of host endosymbiont integration. Systems such as these seem likely to further undermine any simple criterion to cleanly distinguish an endosymbiont from an organelle. It will be interesting to explore how these patterns are common or distinct in protist and animal symbionts, as differences in life strategies of protost and animal hosts may influence the timescale of evolutionary processes such as genome reduction. Reduction of a bacterial genome from approximately 4000 genes to 500 or 600 genes likely takes millions of years in animals even though the initial phase of reduction can be rapid. Faster generation times of protist hosts may speed this process substantially. Similarly, some insect symbiont populations experience bottlenecks due to the maternal transmission, whereas protosymbionts likely experience bottlenecks every time host cells divide. Subsection Context-dependent plasticity of function in protist symbionts Genomics may have explained a great deal about protist symbiont evolution, but has shed less light on the function of these symbioses. Individual cases have been proposed to be based on a wide variety of functions, some highly specific to the partnership, others more broadly applicable across a variety of contexts. In some cases, No, quote, function exists in the simplest sense because the symbiont drives the association. It is freeloading. In other cases, the function may be difficult to infer from genomic data alone. Some functions, such as defensive symbiosis, change with conditions, selection pressure, or over-evolutionary time. Below, we outline a few broad categories and how their impact varies across the tree of eukaryotes. Metabolic symbioses. Simple nutritional supplementation is unlikely to be as dominant a function in protists as it is in animal hosts, but the relative ease by which it is identified and documented means some of the best understood protosymbioses are based on acquiring nutrients. This appears to be especially common among non phagotrophic protists. Many marine algae are oxytrophic for vitamin B12, for example, and rely on symbiotic bacteria for its provision. Soluble iron and nitrogen are also common limiting factors in the open ocean. Marinobacter ectosymbionts commonly provision iron, whereas nitrogen is supplied to various algal lineages by endo or ectosymbiotic alpha, beta, And gamma proteobacteria and cyanobacteria that often have reduced photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is itself also a common basis for cyanobacterial endosymbioses, found, for example, in dinoflagellates, radiolarians, and cercozoans. A particularly well studied instance is the highly integrated chromatophore of the cercozoan amoeba. Paulinella. Anaerobic ciliates have also been shown to house photoheterotrophic bacteria, but in this case you use bacteria chlorophyll harboring proteobacteria. Nutritional symbioses are not uncommon in protists that reside within the digestive tracts of animals. The best studied are the abundant and complex symbionts of parabasalids and oxymonads and termite hindguts, which are often involved in nitrogen provisioning. Some insect-associated trypanosomatids, angomonas, strigomonas, Kentomonas, and navomonas, also depend on two unrelated beta-proteobacterial endosymbionts for purines, hemes, amino acids, and vitamins. Syntrophic associations are based on metabolism, but also include detoxification and removal of metabolic byproducts. Syntrophy is typified by the associations between various bacteria and archaea and hydrogenosomes, which are anaerobic derivatives of mitochondria that produce molecular hydrogen. It has been proposed that hydrogenosome metabolism is more efficient if the hydrogen is removed by symbionts that use it for methanogenesis, reductive acetogenesis, or as a donor of reducing equivalent coupled with anaerobic respiration. Methanogenic archaea are hydrogen scavengers in ciliates, amoebae, and termite associated oxymonads parabacelids, often physically associated with hydrogenosomes. In ciliates, up to 95% of intracellular hydrogen is taken up by symbiotic methanogens, shifting hydrogenosome metabolism to produce acetate instead of butyrate, and consequently improving host growth. In addition to methanogenic archaea, a variety of other symbionts also have the capacity for hydrogen scavenging, including the sulfate-reducing delta proteobacteria, spirochetes, bacteroidetes of parabasalids, and the epsilon-proteobacteria ectosymbionts of breviatians. The free-living anaerobic amoeba polymyxa contains an entire consortium of prokaryotes, aerobic erotococcus to eliminate trace oxygen anaerobic methanousatia to optimize hydrogen gas levels, and sintrophoraptus to provide substrate for methanousatia. Whereas some in vitro studies showed that elimination of hydrogen scavengers resulted in significant deceleration of the protist growth, others only reported the host survival. Moreover, many anaerobic protists live without hydrogen-consuming symbionts, and the necessity for keeping them likely depends on many additional factors, such as nutrient availability, the type of prey-organism, diffusion rate of hydrogen determined by the volume of host cell, partial pressure of hydrogen gas in the immediate environment, and the presence of free-living hydrogen scavengers. In certain cases, such as in the parabacillids, Methanogens likely benefit their host primarily by supplying essential nutrients, rather than by eliminating hydrogen. protist and trophic associations are also believed to play a role in anoxic sea sediment, sometimes referred to as symbiosis oasis. Here, ciliates and symbiontid euglenozoans withstand high concentrations of of toxic sulfides thanks to sulfate oxidizing epsilon proteobacteria that colonize their surface, an arrangement visually reminiscent of termite gut ectosymbionts. Aerobic protists engage in similar associations exemplified by bacteroidetes and proteobacterial ectosymbionts that significantly improve growth in the diatom amphiprora by removing hydrogen peroxide a toxic product of photosynthesis. Anoxic environments were also the stage for a different type of nutritional symbiosis that evolved at least twice. Both in marine benthic foraminifera and in stratified lake dwelling ciliates, intracellular gamma-proteobacteria seem to provide energy to their hosts directly as ATP. These bacteria use nitrate instead of oxygen as a terminal electron acceptor making their eukaryotic hosts potentially important denitrifiers, a role which is otherwise metabolically restricted to prokaryotes or eukaryotes relying on horizontally transferred genes from bacteria. Defense and competition Some protosymbionts provide the host with defense against bacterial infections or predation. Most chlamydias, for example, are parasitic, but some provide their acanthi-amoeba host with immunity against lytic legionella infection. A different kind of defense is found in the ciliate euploitidium, which is equipped with extrusive varicomicrobia ectosymbionts that defend against predation. In laboratory conditions without predation, and these so-called epigenosomes are non-essential and often lost but the association appears to be indispensable in the natural environment. Probably the best-known example of symbiont-mediated competition is found in Paramecium, and it's Cadibacter killer symbionts. Harboring Cadibacter leads to slightly reduced fitness, but this is offset because symbionts can infect and kill nearby uninfected hosts, eliminating competitors. These functions are not immediately obvious from genomic data alone and might prove to be much more common than currently appreciated. Movement and Taxis Symbioses that facilitate movement of the host are not common, but stand out as perhaps unique to protists. The classic example is the parabacillate mixotrica paradoxin, which is propelled by the synchronous movement of up to 200,000 ectosymbiotic spirochetes covering its entire surface. Its four anterior flagella merely steer. In another case, bacteroidetes are embedded in parallel rows into the cell membrane of another paribacillid, caducea, and provide motility through the coordinated action of their connected bundles of flagella Creating helical waves that power gliding movement when the host is in contact with the substrate. An entirely different example is the protochlamydia endosymbiont of Acanthamoeba, which improves host amoeboid locomotion by modifying host acting remodeling systems. The ectosymbiotic delta proteobacteria of symbionted euglenozoans are non motile and thus not involved in the protist propulsion. However, owing to incorporation of ferrimagnetic nanoparticles, they act as magnetoreceptors guiding their hosts along the magnetic field. It has been speculated that magnetoreception coupled with the hosts' chemical sensing may navigate the protist as a compass towards the near surface of marine anoxic sediments, where redox conditions and nutrition are optimal. Chemotaxis has also been evoked to explain host and symbiont morphological adaptation in the oxymonad streblomastics, but whether this is consistent with the system's function has not been tested. Parasites and pathogens Parasitic or pathogenic relationships, which, for simplicity, we will not attempt to distinguish here, impart a negative impact on host fitness As we have noted, however, such measurements are rarely made for symbiotic relationships, for which the effects on host fitness can be context-dependent and changeable anyway. Nowhere is this complexity more evident than in the pathogens of protists. The co-evolutionary transition from pathogen to essential symbiont in the classic laboratory observations of the Legionella amoeba system took months, but other systems are plastic and respond to environmental conditions over periods of days or less. Furia caryophila reduces the fitness of paramecium bureliae during stationary phase, but in some strains, fitness is increased during exponential growth. Similarly, the Jekyll and Hyde extracellular pathogen of Emiliana huxleyi, phaobacter inhibens first promotes host growth by producing antibiotics, but subsequently produces a different toxin that kills the host. Both of these systems could appear mutualistic or pathogenic, depending on what stage of the relationship was observed. Currently, the most straightforward examples of pathogenesis are the extreme cases exemplified by the candidate bacterial phylum Dependaceae, or TM6, a large group of bacteria mostly known for metagenomics. But two cultured examples have similar life strategies, leaving little room to doubt their pathogenic status. Chromulina vorax was cultured as an obligate intracellular pathogen of the heterotrophic stramenopyle spumella. It is reduced at the genomic metabolic and cellular levels and characterized by a lethal lytic life cycle superficially similar to giant viruses another member of the same group babella massiliensis also lyses its acanthamoeba host leading to the possibility that this is a common life strategy of the dependaciae Although this may seem exotic, other metagenome assembled Dependentiae genomes are similarly reduced at around 1.2 megabase pairs, which is consistent with this being a common life strategy, though perhaps not universal for the group, since one other example is known where no pathogenic effects have yet been observed. Another bacterial group potentially rich in protist pathogens is the Chlamydiae the wide variety of species having been documented to lie several species of amoebozoans. These examples raise the exciting possibility that entire clades have evolved to be specialist pathogens adapted to protozo killing before they became animal pathogens. However, most of this diversity remains uncharacterized, with little or no data on life cycles or hosts This is a potential trove of of interesting data on the evolution of such associations, but will require substantial effort to get more host-pathogen pairs in culture. Subsection Genetic Integration and Organellogenesis Historically, host-symbiont integration has often been portrayed as an ultimate outcome of endosymbiosis, the destination to which other cases of endosymbiosis are, quote, going. But, as our appreciation for the context-dependent nature of symbiosis and the prevalence of conflict over mutualism grows, this view recedes. At the same time, however, the nuances of organelle integration grow more complex as well, and parallels between, quote, endosymbionts and, quote, organelles not only muddy the distinction, but also provide clues, supporting a completely new way to view organelle origins. The recognition that mitochondrion plastids arose by endosymbiosis created a problem. Organelle genomes did not encode sufficient genes to fulfill their functions. This problem was brought into focus by the important hypothesis that the endosymbionts must have transferred genes to the host and the corollary that the protein products of these genes must also be targeted back to the organelles and that is an idea that has played a major role in conceptually distinguishing organelles from other endosymbionts recent findings that other systems also evolve protein targeting adds an interesting twist to this character but the really significant change in thinking comes from digger from digging deeper into the origin of targeted proteins in well-studied organelles. The long-standing assumption is that genes for targeted proteins originate from the endosymbiont that became the organelle. And with this, the more poorly articulated assumptions that gene transfers preceded the evolution of targeting and that organelle origins trace back to a singular endosymbiotic event. An emerging alternative view of the process, based on phylogenetic patterns from genomic data, is quite different. As opposed to a single endosymbiosis, this model is iterative, with periods of recurring quote, trial and error endosymbiosis. And rather than organelle fixation, followed by gene transfer and targeting, the order of events is the opposite. Protein targeting evolves early, before gene transfer and even fixation of the organelle. A few such models have been proposed, emphasizing different aspects of these issues. For plastids, the quote, shopping bag model, focused on the iterative nature of endosymbiosis and the assembly of a chimeric proteome and the quote, targeting ratchet, model focused on the iterative nature and order of events and integration. In these models, which are overlapping and not mutually exclusive, the key phase is a period where endosymbionts are taken up and retained for longer and longer periods of time, but not permanently. Instead, the host incrementally develops ways to use the endosymbiont resources without digesting it selecting for longer retention times, overall more like farming than cooperation. For mitochondria, a farming model has also emerged suggesting that the endosymbiont was originally farmed as a source of nutrients and energy in stressful times. These models take several predictions about phylogenetic patterns that distinguish them from traditional schemes for the genetic integration of endosymbiotic organelles, that appear to be born out of data. In particular, large-scale analyses of the phylogenetic origins of organelle-targeted proteins do not appear to support the conclusion that the genes are all derived from the same lineage as the organelle, and instead they came from a variety of sources. This has now also been found in bacterial symbionts of animals that engage in protein targeting to the symbiont and plastids derived from eukaryote, eukaryote, secondary, and tertiary endosymbiosis. Altogether, presaging a fundamental rethink about genetic integration of endosymbionts in favor of the, quote, shopping bag models. These conclusions are naturally dependent on the challenging problem of inferring remote homologies and deep phylogenies both of which require improved phylogenetic methods and taxon sampling. In effect, Whedon's gene transfer hypothesis appears to be at least partially false, but its protein-targeting corollary is correct. Secondary and tertiary plastid endosymbioses provide even more detailed insights. Here, evidence has been found in one system that protein-targeting precedes the fixation of the organelle, and in several systems, related hosts harboring related plastids have been found to trace back not simply to a single common endosymbiotic event, but instead to many parallel endosymbioses involving closely related symbionts. This is reminiscent of the Euploides polynucleobacter system, but here, the endosymbionts are genetically integrated with the host and not clearly destined for rapid extinction. The appearance of these common traits over a range of symbioses based on diverse functions and involving even more diverse partners suggests that they reflect fundamental processes underpinning a wide variety of endosymbiotic interactions. Conclusions Protists are not a single biologically unified clade of organisms, but rather span the whole diversity of eukaryotes. This diversity alone makes them a deep pool of potentially interesting biology. However, protists are arguably also the least studied fraction of the entire tree of life. Altogether, This affects the many ways in which we interpret the norms and expectations of eukaryotic biology and evolution, since much of what we understand, and more of how we frame it, is based strongly or entirely on one biologically rather odd subgroup, the animals. This situation extends to symbiotic associations, where we know enough to conclude that these interactions are common, functionally diverse, and of great ecological and evolutionary importance. Yet, we are only beginning to glimpse how a greater understanding of them will impact our general understanding of symbiosis more broadly. Genomics provided the spark that ignited an acceleration in our understanding of prokaryotic symbiosis, but it bears repeating that genomics alone will not reveal all we need to know to understand the function or evolution of these systems. For that, a greater push to develop a wider range of systems is needed, with the goal of establishing as deep an understanding of the symbiotic associations from a biological broad swath of eukaryotic diversity as we have from their animal cousins.